Hello and welcome to The Urbanist, Monocle 24's programme all about the built environment and how to make our cities better places to live in. I'm your host, Andrew Tuck. Coming up... The beautiful buildings in cities, they're only the product of the human spirit. And if that is strong, then they will be rebuilt, maybe even better than they were. We cast our eyes across the last 12 months to bring you some of our favourite interviews and reports from the year here on The Urbanist. We hear a love letter for Kyiv and take a guided tour of Bucha as the war in Ukraine rages on, leaving an indelible mark in Ukrainian cities. We also take to the skies to see how a pilot perceives our urban environment from up above. And we head 200 metres underground to test the latest in lift technology. All that and much, much more ahead over the next 30 minutes right here on The Urbanist with me, Andrew Tuck. We start today in Ukraine. Russia's invasion and subsequent war in Ukraine this year has taken its toll on every part of Ukrainian society, not least on its cities. From Mariupol to Lviv, Ukrainian cities and those living within them have experienced a year filled with destruction, insecurity, fear and loss. The Urbanist has endeavoured to bring the stories of these cities to listeners throughout the year, either through on-the-ground reporting or by amplifying voices of those who are still there, living through the conflict. In August, this show's producer, Carla Torabello, visited Ukraine for a two-part special on The Urbanist, exploring how life is continuing within the embattled nation. In this excerpt, Carlotta tours the city of Bucha with its deputy mayor. We are in the Bucha city park. We are near the lake and we were discussing how to name it. Maybe it's like just a park lake because it's the only park uh, lake in the Bucha. We see people who are staying in the water, who are swimming. Of course, few of them, but they are enjoying the summertime like they did a year ago. We have lots of young families and young people here. For us, it's the sign of recovering, and we hope that we will have more and more people coming back to Busha uh, in the nearest future. But you could see even in this park the signs of the war, like here. There was some sort of result of bombing here, even in the park. We don't know why Russians attacked the park, attacked the just nice place, no military inside, but they did. We fixed all we could do during this time after the liberation. Um, we have Redfish Lake on the left, and we were wonder whether the fishes are there, and they are. Here we're stepping, we can hear the water, but we're seeing another yeah. sign of the destruction. Um, how do you feel about that? Um, Look, but that's the reality, because um, this war is... For Ukrainian, that's war because of nothing. But in fact, we understand that that's um, like civilization war between the dictatorship and democracy, between like European um, willing of Ukrainians to be a part of democratic world and uh, Russian um, ambitions to control all the territory. But we realize that Putin doesn't need people here 
he needs the land without Ukrainians, the land without people. So his dream is empty parks and empty streets, no kids, no families here. Our answer should be we need to fight and to live at the same time. Do you have a lot of cooperation at the moment with other cities, both in Ukraine and outside? We are building relations city to city because they are very helpful. For example, we signed an agreement with Kashkaish in Portugal and they are supporting us to repair some kindergarten or school. We signed the agreement with Bergamo and they are helping us to um, reconstruct kindergarten in Havrilivka village in Bucha community. We also have very good friends in Lithuania, Palanga, and Palanga helped us with uh, food supply and with lots of stuff from the early beginning. We're also trying to build up a friendship with German and French city. The mayor of Dunkirk gave a proposal for us to be the sister city, and we think that's the good symbol of recovering in the world. So we want Bucha to also be the symbol of how you could create nice place for living after the big tragedy. Earlier in the year, the urbanist also reached out to a collection of voices across Ukraine to send love letters to the cities they currently or previously called home. Ayla Chandra brought us this report from the capital of Kyiv. My name is Alia Chandra. I live in Kyiv. This is the city where I grew up. This is the city to which I returned after a brief period of living in the United States. This is the city that I call my home. I can't really imagine living in any other city. The first thing that you would notice about Kyiv, the thing that is really iconic about it, are the gold domes. The golden pear-shaped domes of our cathedrals that stand against the blue sky. Another name for Kyiv is the Second Jerusalem, because there are so many churches there. Kyiv is a city where I feel safe at night, that I can go anywhere at any time of the day and I will feel totally safe and protected. This is a city where we also see the scars of the Soviet Union on its streets. We see the crumbling Soviet buildings but they are interspersed with buildings from the 20th century, from the 19th century. It's a bit of a hodgepodge of architecture, I guess. It's also a city of a lot of parks. Once it was the greenest city in the world, or so the legend goes. In any case, you will be surprised how many parks there are in Kyiv and how green it is. This is a city where it is safe to swim in the river. The third largest river in Europe goes for Kiev, Dnipro, and each summer we go there to spend time at the beach. And I know that this is something not many capitals have because of pollution. It's a city of theaters also. It's a city of music. It's the city of my friends and my family. Right now, you know, the only memory that comes to mind are the pictures of Khrushchev Street. This is our central street. After World War II, Kyiv was basically obliterated by the Nazis and also by the Soviet troops that were retreating. They just exploded the whole center of the city. Another picture that comes to mind is the demolition of the 
Dormition Cathedral in Kiev Pechersk Lavra. It's like one of the central monasteries of the Orthodox world. So there was this church from the 11th century, and during World War II, it was destroyed. And we still don't know exactly who did it, either the Nazis or the Soviets, but probably the Soviets. This all comes to mind to me now because I'm witnessing the scenes of destruction on the streets of my city. And they are so similar to these photos from World War II. It breaks my heart. We got a warning from the Ukrainian Greek Catholic Church that the Russian invaders will try to bomb our Sofiev's cathedral. This is a UNESCO site. It's also from the 11th century. It was built by Prince Yaroslav the Wise. It's one of my favorite places in Kiev. There was just like some data, I don't know where they got it, that the Russian invaders might try to bomb it. And that is totally plausible because they're setting cruise missiles into apartment buildings. They totally demolished the central square in Kharkiv. And I'm just devastated when I imagined that Sofia might be gone. It's just heartbreaking. You know, my grandparents, they lived for the war, World War II. And they told me after that how the whole population of the city went out to restore, to rebuild everything that was damaged. And I remember these pictures of just the rubble on Krishatik Street and all the old buildings from the 19th century that were destroyed there. But I'm just thinking, will we have to rebuild Krishatik again? Will it be demolished like Kharkiv's Freedom Square? Our foreign minister said that there will be hard times ahead and a lot of beautiful buildings will be destroyed, but we will rebuild everything together with our friends. And I'm just seeing these images of my grandfather and grandmother building Kiev out of ashes after the Second World War. And, you know, yes, Kiev was rebuilt, but so much was lost, so much history and culture. But I also know that the most important thing is for a nation to be strong enough, to be resilient enough, and to be deep enough to produce these monumental works again. Because really, the beautiful buildings in cities, they're only the product of the human spirit. And if that is strong, then they will be rebuilt, and maybe even better than they were. I do not know what our cities will look like after. Maybe this bombing of the cities, it will be really a symbolic break with the past break with the Soviet past, we can try to build our story anew and not have the reminders of the Soviet Union standing everywhere around us. When I was growing up, I didn't, I guess, really appreciate that I was growing up in Kiev. My life basically revolved around my school and my music school and just my friends. And, you know, it was very convenient because... And I basically didn't have to travel anywhere. The library was closed, the school, the music school, the store. I remember also just being free with my friends to go places in Kiev, explore. <laughs> in the winter, we went sledding on the nearby hills. We went to theaters. My mom, she always liked to take me to theaters and we just dressed up and we went to an opera theater and I remember there was a time when the tickets they were so cheap that getting there on public transport it was more expensive than the cheapest ticket to go to the opera theater there was a time like that 
I also then came a moment that I understand that I could make Kiev better <laughs> because, for instance, we have a lot of traffic jams and I know that bikes can help solve that. So I worked a little bit on the bike association. We planned like bike routes and how to promote biking infrastructure. And a lot of people that I know, they continue working to make Kiev better. I guess what for me Kiev means is freedom to be myself and really to be engaged and create the story of the city that I live in. Anything that I can imagine, I can implement in Kiev. That's really an empowering feeling. I remember for some time I went away to work in the United States and then I came back and there was just this overflowing feeling of empowerment when I returned. I feel that every stone in the city is my own, that every person in the city is somebody I could talk to, somebody that... Either I could help or could help me. Of course, it is the capital. It is the symbol of our statehood, of our nationhood. It's no surprise that Russia wants to take over Kiev. I mean, whoever controls Kiev will control Ukraine. And, you know, like just growing around these uh, government buildings like the Verkhovna Rada, our parliament, or the cabinet of ministers, and having the experience of going inside them and talking to people who work in the state authorities... I just get this feeling that, yes, this is my government. I can influence them. They are working for me. And this is why I'm so incredibly angry that somebody would try to take over my city by force and take over my nation by force. If they take over Kiev, then they will have symbolic power over the Ukrainian nation, which is why everybody is just resisting and Kiev is just fighting back heroically. You know, they say that Kiev... Is also a city built on seven hills like Rome. We do have a lot of hills that overlook our city. And I have a favorite hill in which I like to go and just sit there at the sunset and look at the city before me as it glimmers and its sparkling lights to imagine all the human lives, all the human stories that take place behind each of those sparkling lights. I would go on my favorite hill just to feel the city pulse and live and just spend an evening with my favourite city. That was Ayla Chandra speaking about her city of Kiev, and you can hear the full collection of love letters on episode 542 of The Urbanist. And our two-part report from the country can be heard in episodes 566 and 567. Next up, we get a new perspective on the city from episode number 558 of The Urbanist when we spoke to British Airways long-haul pilot Mark Van Hernicke about his new book, Imagine a City. When I lived in Boston, there had been a highway built right through the centre of Boston that destroyed a whole bunch of neighbourhoods. And there was a massive project when I lived there to put that highway underground. It was called the Big Dig and to try to restore the neighbourhoods above that had been damaged by the construction of that highway. The highway was a monstrosity. It was kind of decaying and crowded. But I saw a video of what, I guess, in the 50s, they had looked ahead to when they built that highway. And they showed, it was like the show, The Jetsons. That's what it looked like. It showed this glowing highway going through the city with these little dots moving along. And, you know, it looked like the future. And the future didn't work out the way that they planned it. At other times, my previous job, I was often in Paris for work, and we stayed on um, Boulevard Haussmann. And it was very interesting to understand that Paris had also been largely replanned with a vision of the future. And so I had a whole chapter in the book about Jane Jacobs and Robert Moses. So the future of cities, it won't be what we planned. (laughs) 
When I was a kid and I imagined my city, I never considered how it might smell. I never thought about the winds that might reach it in one season or the next. Winds that might have been first named and mythologized thousands of years previously, and that more recently had been harnessed by the city's mills and ships, and that still ease or slow the migrations of the birds that touch down on the lakes and the city's parks, and on the restored canals that recall a former age of its industry. Not once did I consider all the breaths that would be taken, or the millions of chests that must rise and fall at every moment of the lives that formed the metropolis. The problem, when you only imagine a place, and especially when you do so alone, is that there's no one to point out such obvious omissions. There are no helpful friends or stern inspectors to tap you on the shoulder and warn you. Your city has no air. I think a lot of kids have imaginary places or imaginary entities as kids. And for me, it took the form of, of a city. When I grew up and started traveling, I realized that the real cities were far more interesting than anything I ever imagined. I couldn't have begun to imagine, you know, the reality of our urban world. And I would say that there's one thing that I have come to appreciate more as an adult is that our sense of a city is itself in some ways imaginary. I mean, if you think about the city, you know best. And you close your eyes and you try to imagine what you could draw of it. And you think of how, okay, well, there's this street that I walk along every day. I could draw that really well. I could tell you what comes on this corner and then on the next corner. And then you try to move a block or a street away from that. The way that that fades out and yet will then eventually intersect with some other part of the city you know. The idea that cities exist in the imaginations even of those who live in them and think they know them well or have lived their whole lives in them is an idea I find increasingly lovely. And is something I really wanted to capture in the book. I really love flying into Los Angeles, especially the last hour and a half of the flight. You have the sense of these vast, vast deserts, and then this ring of mountains, which are often snow-capped, and then beyond them, you have this bowl of light, which is lying on the edge of the Pacific. It's an extremely dramatic approach. I really recommend, if you're flying to Los Angeles, that you get a seat, especially on the right side of the aircraft. Mark van Hernicke there, and a reading from his book from Monocle's Alexis Self from episode 558 of The Urbanist. One of the big moments for London in 2022 came when the long-awaited Elizabeth Line, a new route on London's transport map, finally came to life in the capital. To discuss the design of the line, in episode 564, we took a tour with the industrial designer Julian Maynard, who was an integral part of the team behind the look and feel of this new way of travelling. Next station, Tottenham Court Road. OK, so we're, we're jumping off at Tottenham Court Road and we're going to be seeing a little bit more of the design here of the Elizabeth Line. You'll probably recognise a lot of the kit from Paddington, like the seating and the signage. You'll see the vastness of this platform. This has got a slight curve on. And the team's approach really was to rationalise these series of spaces. When we originally looked at this package of work, each station had a number of different tunnel sizes. We looked at that and we rationalised to try and get a more common approach. So we've reduced the number of tunnels to a couple of platform tunnels, cross passages, lower concourse tunnels, escalator shafts. With that, we had to then think about 
the design of them and what is the appropriate way of designing those spaces. Our inspiration came from expressing and understanding the engineering. The construction of these spaces are spray concrete lining and immediately we saw some opportunities to work with the engineering. You'll see these curved forms. There's practical reasons for that but we saw that as an opportunity to shrink wrap the cladding around these rather organic flowing spaces. It gives the passenger a sort of like continuous and sinuous flow from ticket hall down to the platforms. Just to describe the scene a little bit, the platform, it stretches certainly to my left around the corner. I can barely see the end of it. It's huge. This organic shape, you feel the platform half the tunnel is probably the train, but you're wrapped in this kind of vein that kind of goes underneath the ground of London. Normally a platform is an advertising blasted space. Here, somehow, (laughs) there are some nice digital panels, but you've managed to keep your beautiful concrete walls uh, pretty free of any other kind of interventions. That's a tough thing because that's how many of these operators make money is by taking this advertising. I'm glad you noticed that because there was a real push early on in the projects to actually understand the commercial requirements because you know we recognize that this is a commercial business and we can't have our head in the sand and say we don't want anything like this at all what we did is that we looked at where is the most important locations for the wayfinding and signage and information we identified those all on the plans then we put an overlayer and said where is the best place to put advertising and then another layer where's best to put the art program and you can guarantee that those areas clash in some form. So what we said to, and the client was fully supportive of it, is saying that the most important part is to get this station operational and efficient. So we said, if we could contain the advertising onto the platform screen wall, and that is where you've got a captive audience waiting for the train, you can entertain them. Same on the escalator. When you go down the escalator, captive audience, there's an opportunity to engage with the passenger when you come off the train we say this is the rival's wall that back wall is the rival's wall it's critical for people to make their decision points here left to go Tottenham Court Road right to go Dean Street we supplement that with those legible London maps because sometimes you you have to try orientate yourself is it the Tottenham Court Road entrance or is it Dean Street I can see from that map and I can make my decision right here Julian Maynard there from episode 564 of The Urbanist. The Urbanist summer series saw us delve into the legacy left behind by four important names in urban planning and architecture to see how their work has influenced how cities continue to be designed and built. In the fourth episode of the series, we explored the work of the late British Iraqi architect Zaha Hadid, and in this highlight, Monocle's Jessica Bridger explores Hadid's first major project, the Vitra Fire Station. Everyone wants their first major project to be special. In the case of Zaha Hadid, Vitra Fire Station was very special indeed, and still is. First, let's talk about something called paper architecture. Paper architecture only exists on paper. It's not built, and maybe no one cares about it other than architects. Really good paper architecture is actually important to the discipline, one of the things that architects and some other urbanists really like to discuss. 
because it moves ideas forward way before built work does or can. There are more sheets of paper in a ream than there are truly visionary clients or even architects wealthy enough to build their own the wild, the weird, and wacky. Okay, so that's paper architecture. Before Vitra Fire Station was completed in 1993, Zaha was known mostly as a paper architect for two decades. By the 1990s, her powerful drawings and paintings were well-known and much admired in the right circles. Planes, riding, cascading, and folding in space. Surfaces, active, exploding. The idea of forms so sublime that when people compare her work to sculpture, I often think they're missing the point. The scale is awesome. The Vitra Fire Station is on the campus of the design company Vitra in Weil am Rhein, Germany, directly on the border with Basel, Switzerland. Following a horrific fire in the 1980s, during which nearly half of Vitra's campus burned down in a single night, the company sought to rebuild in high style. Buildings were commissioned from Frank Gehry to Da Ando and more illustrious architects. This started a high architecture cavalcade on the Vitra campus that grows even to this day. Of course, one of the buildings had to be a dedicated fire station. Choosing Zaha to build it, who had not yet built a single significant structure operating at the leading edge of deconstructivist design, was an act of faith that maybe only a design company could make. The long linear building is made from poured-in-place concrete, the formwork visible, and most of the surfaces left raw. It is a building of planes, translated from her drawings. There's collision, tilt, rise and fall, seemingly torquing and twisting while never really bending or curving at all. Some of the planes are walls, some roofs, and rarely is there a boring angle. From above, the building looks like the force of tectonic plates brought to a landscape scale from their elemental crash of powers. The fire station was designed to house fire trucks and service spaces for the firefighters, including a break room and changing area spread over two floors with ample light flooding in. A canopy over the garage opening is a violently jagged shape. It emerges from the building with support from a grouping of thin metal columns. They form a rather undisciplined brigade of structural reinforcement as they actively fight against the idea of 90-degree angles being the only reasonable answer to questions of statics. This is not a reasonable building. However, it is super functional, and while it did not serve as a fire station for long, it served well and does its new duty as an exhibition space admirably. But only Zaha could have built such a thing in the 1990s, convinced even an open client like Vitra to agree, all based on drawings which look, frankly, insane, menacing, and utterly appealing. Her paper architecture would go on as a foundation to build Zaha Hadid Architects into a world-class international firm over the following decades. Vitra Fire Station and the drawings for it still inspire architects and urbanists even today. Bold is bold, and Zaha was irrefutably, insistently Zaha, then, now, and forever. Jessica Bridger there in the Zaha Hadid episode from our Legacies series. You can listen back to all four editions in episodes 560 to 563 of our podcast. 
And finally, today, we travelled deep underground for episode 548 of The Urbanist as we explored the testing facility of Finnish elevator manufacturer Kerner. Rather than building up, they dug down, utilising a decommissioned mineshaft to ensure their facility remains as low impact as possible. Urbanist producer Carlos Ribello headed 200 metres below ground to get this report. So we're here now 200 metres below the ground. We are at Kone's high-rise testing laboratory. Uh, this is a working limestone mine, and the site that Kone uses has actually 11 um, elevator shafts uh, varying in size. This is their way of testing um, their technology, and instead of building up, uh, as you can imagine, a tower of that size would perhaps disturb the nature around us. Uh, so they decided to go down. And we just arrived um, at uh, this first stop, 200 meters below the ground. And we're going to go and see how these uh, elevators are actually tested. This is actually the setup that we saw in the, in the laboratory for this drop test shaft. And uh, while it's a bit difficult to go inside the shaft and, and see it in, in your own eyes, so that's why we have this demo set up here. So this is actually the kind of the top of the shaft and the, the dummy elevator or, or sling that is uh, imitating the, the real lift. I don't know if there's volunteers to kind of drop the lift. You do the honors. There's an exhibition uh, around this history of the mine. And, uh, oh, now you feel the cold, yes. <laughs> yeah. This is really live mine. Uh, they started the mining in late 1800. First with this kind of open air, but then had to go underground when this was kind of empty, the kind of what you were able to reach from the kind of open air and the water started to come in. And uh, this is active, active, so not obviously here, but in the other parts of mine, they, they continue to extract the chalk stone, which is then used in many, many areas. Of course, for example, the printed paper, like you know, it's, it's reducing, but this kind of glossy paper, we are using the chalk stone to get the kind of nice quality of the printing and this kind of glossy, glossy feeling on the paper. You can try to break some, some stones, but they are first, so make sure you are so we're now on level minus 112 it's around 100 meters below ground so we have actually gone up from last time we checked in and as you can hear from the steps around us the terrain has changed we have actually gravel because we are inside the active mine this is where we are moving from you know the sleek side of uh, it being in, presented to the public by Kone and now we're going into the actual mine, into the tunnels, uh, into the stone and we've actually just touched uh, some limestone as well to try to see how not only they navigate these tunnels in order to access their own high-rise testing facility but just the effort that is happening below ground that you're not even aware of. This includes a small tour where we're able to see the history of the mine so far. 
the tour included an impressive light show, which highlighted just the sheer dimension of some of the caves inside this mine. I tried my best not to think too much of the 200 or so meters of ground that laid above our heads as we continued to descend into the mine. A small display of old photos showed the ways in which miners used to come into work in this very spot, resembling more a cauldron on chains than anything else. We've come a long way since then, and I'm glad that we could use the elevator today. Speaking of which, it's time to make our ascent and go back to ground level. Carlotta Ribello reporting from deep underground at the Kerner testing facility in Finland. Well, that's all for this week's episode of The Urbanist. And wherever you are in the world, we wish you a very happy new year and look forward to being in your company next year for more Urbanist adventures. But for now, make sure you also keep an eye out for Monocle magazine, which contains many more urbanism stories every month. You can find us in all good newsstands or, of course, by becoming a subscriber at monocle.com. Now, that would be a good way to start your year. Today's show was produced by Carlotta Ribello and David Stevens, and David also edited the show. To play you out this week, here's Hop Along with Sister Cities. Thank you for listening, city lovers. How long in the dream?